The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight, where we look at the health of the country in various ways, shapes, and forms, domestic policy, foreign policy, government um, decrees, regulations, as well as the core of our original thinking was just around healthcare. But there's so many more important things in this country to deal with at this point, since we are so far away from free market healthcare. So today, I want to talk about what is on the news, what everybody is talking about, and what I'm sure other programs even here at America's Web Radio has been talking about, and that is uh, gun control. After the horrific shooting in uh, Texas, there is a renewed interest in gun uh, reform. That happens every time there is a major calamity of people being shot in schools. Of course, it never comes out when there is uh, shootings in every major city in the United States that already have uh, strict gun control uh, rules and regulations and the ability to buy or use uh, guns or ammo or anything else. So the areas that have the most restrictions seem to have uh, the most problems, but politicians are likely to grab onto any uh, crisis, as they say, don't let a good crisis go to waste, and they have been pushing their own agenda, and their agenda is to get rid of all of the guns uh, in the United States, if at all possible. Well, I am a gun owner. I am a hunter. Uh, I did more in the past than I do today. Uh, I do um, um, target shooting. I was in the military, uh, trained with using guns as well. And it is amazing to me that people who don't know or don't ever have any contact with guns, didn't grow up with guns, didn't grow up uh, hunting or shooting in any way, are so scared of guns that they want to take guns away from everybody. Just the sight of a gun to many of those people will send them into a panic, um, let alone a real gun that they might um, actually see and they'd be scared to touch and feel. Let me give you an example of how um, paranoid people are who have nothing to do with guns uh, than being confronted with a gun. And the story is this, and it's a real story. I was taking uh, a relative of mine to the airport, going back from the Atlanta airport to uh, Seattle, Washington, and in their baggage that they were going to check in was a BB gun, uh, it wasn't even an air rifle shooting pellets. It was a simple uh, child's BB gun, if you will, and something that in today's world, or at least in the world that I grew up in, uh, you'd be able to give to a 10 or 12-year-old to uh, learn how to hunt and how to uh, appropriately use a gun uh, so that they would know when they get older how to handle more significant um, uh, weaponry. Well, the child uh, and the mother going to the airport with the baggage uh, at the check-in line for um, putting the luggage on the plane, not the carry-on luggage, but putting luggage onto the plane. And as they were staying there, the mother wasn't going to say anything about the BB gun because it did not have any BBs in it. It was not uh, dangerous in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but the young child, about seven or eight years old, uh, as the bags were being checked in, looked up at the mother and 
and hearing sight of the um, uh, airline uh, employee said, Mom, should we tell him about the gun in the bag? And the mother, sort of petrified at this point, uh, turned to the son and said, um, and then turned to the um, uh, employee, the airline employee, and said, okay, uh, let me show you what we have. Well, they pulled out this empty BB gun, and the lady behind the counter was absolutely petrified. She said, oh, my God, oh, my God, a a weapon. And she didn't know what to do with it. And I, and I was standing there. I had brought them to the airport. And I said, well, I'll just take it back to the car then, and they can pick it up on their next trip. And I went to take it and carry it out, and, and the lady behind the counter just uh, petrified again and said, you can't, you can't walk through the airport with that gun. You can't walk through it. So they had to search around for a um, – a container, a a, uh, a cardboard box that I could put the weapon in and carry it out the airport without anybody else knowing. I guess that was probably a good idea because it would be other people who just were petrified at the thought of seeing a gun. Uh, I have to admit that this uh, BB gun looked like more like a rifle than a traditional uh, BB gun with a plastic, um, uh, you know, surroundings of, of, of on the gun. So. Uh, the story really is to identify and exemplify how people who have nothing to do with guns, that lady behind the counter uh, had probably never seen a gun before in real life, had never had any experience with guns or shooting. And I'm tell you, she was just over the top with her response to seeing uh, this relatively innocent uh, BB gun uh, that was not even loaded, didn't have anything in it. It was in baggage to be checked into the um, into the airlines. We obviously knew that you couldn't get through security with that or take it on a plane, so it was being checked in, but that wasn't uh, good enough. So today I want to talk about uh, gun control laws. I want to talk about uh, where we might be going and why they either do or don't work. But I want to start off by talking to and letting you hear from a professor of philosophy, somebody's looking at this from a philosophical standpoint, not so much a, a legal uh, standpoint, not a, a pro or a con on gun rights, but somebody's looking at it from a, a logical philosophical standpoint about whether or not gun control law, laws make any sense. And his name is Michael Hebmer, and he is a professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado. So in starting with uh, uh, Professor um, Hemer, um, let me ask him to talk about the problems with gun control laws, and then he'll get into some of the details, and we'll have a little bit of a back and forth on what he means, and I'll try to make some commentary on, on what, his, um, what his arguments are. So uh, Dr. Hemer, uh, please tell our audience about the problems, as you see, with gun control laws. So I'm going to talk about two main things. Uh, there are two main kinds of problems that apply to most gun control laws that people are talking about. Uh, so the first thing I'm going to talk about is gun rights. That is, um, the problem that restrictions on gun ownership might be violating the rights of individual gun owners, uh, in particular their right to defend themselves. And uh, it makes the state something like an accomplice to crime. And the second main problem is the non-compliance problem. This is a problem that uh, gun control laws are frequently ineffective because the people that they are aimed at restricting will not follow them. So the laws will simply fail to have their intended effect. 
So, Professor, you have a unique view as a professor of philosophy. Um, why don't you walk this audience through a couple of scenarios that will kind of put them in that perspective so it's not just, well, we ought to have the right to have guns just because it says so in the Constitution or some other argument against guns uh, because they're killing people. And that's sort of the traditional argument we have. So lay out a couple of scenarios that as a philosopher you would start to sort of make the case around um, uh, gun rights and how individuals or governments might interfere with the use of guns and what the philosophical answer would be for that kind of interference. All right, so uh, I'm going to start with hypothetical examples. Uh, uh, so imagine there are, there are three people in this example. There's a person who we will call the victim and another person called the killer and another person called the accomplice. The victim is sitting in his house at night when the killer breaks into the house and is going to kill the victim. The accomplice is somebody who's in the house for whatever reason, and for whatever reason, the accomplice holds the victim down while the killer comes and then stabs the victim to death. All right, question. What is the correct moral assessment of this action by the accomplice? So obviously the killer committed one of the most serious crimes, or maybe the most serious crime that we have, but what about the accomplice? And I want you to have the intuitive reaction that, well, the accomplice performed an action that was comparable to that of the killer. The accomplice performed a serious wrong, which is about as wrong as actually killing the victim. Uh, it might be slightly less bad, but it's comparable. So the main thrust of your examples is going to be focusing on the accomplice. So here the accomplice holds down the victim who gets killed, and um, maybe the accomplice is not the uh, the killer per se, but he certainly was a partner in the killing by holding down uh, the victim. So give me the next example, and uh, let's start to make some contrasts and differences. All right, here's a second example. Um, like the previous example, except this time, the victim has a gun, which the victim would use to defend himself against the killer, except that the accomplice grabs it and runs away just before the victim is able to do that. So, and the result is that the victim is then killed by the killer. Question, what is the moral status of the accomplice's action in this case? And you're supposed to have the intuitive reaction that that is like the previous case, right? It's another case in which the accomplice prevented the victim from defending himself, and that is morally comparable to actually being the killer. It's maybe slightly less bad than actually being the killer, but, you know, it's kind of on a par. Okay, so here the accomplice grabs the gun away from the victim and runs away so that the victim cannot defend himself and is ultimately killed. So I hope our audience is following this because these are not um, um, uh, crazy examples. They are examples leading up to a major point that I know the professor is going to make uh, next or in some of his comments that follow here. So uh, pay attention and let's listen to the third example of what an accomplice uh, might do and how responsible they are for the death of an individual. All right, here's a third example. 
Um, there's a citizen who wants to own a gun for self-defense purposes and, if able to, would use a gun to defend himself against crimes, but the government either stops the citizen from getting the gun in the first place or takes the gun away from the citizen, with the result that the citizen is unable to defend himself on some actual occasion when a criminal comes and then is victimized by the crime. What would we think of the state's action in this case? And the intuitive reaction that you're supposed to have is, well, that's similar to the previous two examples, actually. The state prevented the person from defending themselves and thereby became something like an accomplice to the criminal. Uh, The state's action there is maybe slightly less bad than actually killing citizens, but uh, it's not a lot less bad, right? Well, Professor, I hope our audience can see the value of looking at this from a philosophical standpoint, not just a legal or a pro or anti-gun control. So wrap up this segment for us and what this all means from your perspective. Uh, And so um, the argument here is going to be that the state, by enacting gun control laws, makes itself an accomplice to crime. That is, it does something that's morally comparable to actually committing multiple robberies, rapes, assaults, and murders. Okay, so my argument, first premise, gun control laws coercively prevent some individuals from defending themselves against crimes. There are some people who, if able, would use a gun to defend themselves against crimes, and gun control laws will typically result in some people not doing so who would have done so. Uh, And coercively preventing someone from defending themselves against a crime is seriously wrong. Specifically, it's morally on a par with actually committing the crime. So the conclusion is that gun control laws typically are seriously wrong, specifically that they're morally comparable to the state committing multiple murders, robberies, rapes, and assaults. Well, Professor, it's a very interesting perspective that maybe our audience hasn't heard of before. Let's take a quick commercial break, and I want to come back, and I want to delve a little bit more into the philosophical approach uh, to uh, recognizing the value or the problems with gun control laws. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we're talking about gun control, uh, gun rights, and we're looking at it from uh, a philosophical standpoint. We have with us today uh, Professor Professor Mike uh, Hebner, and uh, he's talking about it not from a legal perspective, but from a philosophical perspective. So I want to go back to the professor and have him talk about the nature of rights and how rights really work and where can you limit rights and what justification is necessary to limit somebody's uh, God-given rights? So, Professor, 
Uh, give us a more philosophical approach to what you're saying about how gun rights and limitations um, really don't work very well and how we should view what's going on in today's political environment to try to restrict the use of guns, bullets, and any other kind of uh, weaponry that the federal government or bureaucrats just don't want people to have. So this is to illustrate a point about um, violating people's rights in, in order to help somebody else. So this is a well-known hypothetical example in the ethics literature. Uh, say that there's, there's a town in which a crime has been committed that caused a lot of public outrage. Um, and the sheriff of the town can't find the actual criminal. Uh, but he believes that unless somebody is punished for this crime, there are going to be riots in which multiple innocent people are going to be injured unjustly, of course. Uh, so the sheriff comes up with a plan. He can frame an innocent person and get that person to be uh, punished for the crime, and that will prevent the riots. And just accept that that's true. Okay? <laughs> just accept for the purpose of the example that that would prevent the riots. Uh, what should the sheriff do? Should he frame the innocent person? Uh, most people have the intuitive reaction, which I think you should have, that no, he should not do that. That would be unjust. Um, why? Because it's a violation of the rights of the, of the innocent individual. And what this illustrates is that it's not morally permissible to violate an individual's rights, even if doing so prevents a greater harm to other individuals, right? Uh, it could be preventing a harm to several other individuals. It would be comparable to the harm that you would be, commit, but it would still be wrong because that's the way rights work because your moral responsibility is to not violate other people's rights, right? Your moral responsibility is not to fix every problem in the world. It's, first of all, to make sure that you yourself do not violate other people's rights. Okay, Professor, does that mean that you can never violate an individual's rights for some broader good um, surely there are some examples out there that people use uh, to justify taking away rights of one person for the much greater good. Okay, now, uh, that doesn't mean that it's never permissible to violate an individual's rights. So there are hypothetical examples people like to talk about in which somehow killing an innocent person prevents World War III, in which case you should kill the innocent person. Uh, there are some possible conditions, right? But what these examples illustrate is that, at the very least, it has to be that violating the individual's rights prevents a much greater harm. It can't just be preventing a slightly greater harm or just a few times, right? You can't, it can't just be that you're saving a few people. It would have to be very large harm. Okay. Uh, so, conclusions here. Uh, it's wrong to violate an individual's rights even to prevent a greater but comparable benefit uh, even to produce a greater comparable benefit for others. It might be justified to do it to produce a benefit that's many times greater. So gun control laws are wrong, even if they would prevent greater but comparable harm to others. They might be justified, but only if they prevented many times as much harms as they caused. Aha, so the proponents of gun control now have an out. If there is a much, much greater good, which they would believe comes from controlling uh, individual access to guns, uh, that would be their justification. So again, from a philosophical standpoint now, not just a um, an emotional argument for or against, but from a rational viewpoint, from a logical statistical viewpoint, uh, what is your perspective, what does your research show as to the uh, whether or not that much greater good is achieved 
with any uh, gun control laws that might be in place. Okay. So now we have to consider sort of the costs and benefits of uh, private gun ownership. Um, in the empirical literature on this, uh, one of the main things people talk about is the frequency of defensive gun uses. So how often do people use a gun for self-defense in the United States? Uh, there's a wide range of estimates. So uh, you can get estimates between 55,000 times per year and 4.7 million times per year, right? Number of times that a person used a gun to defend themselves against a crime. Um, it's weird that the estimates are so widely varying, so we don't know, um, you know, with, with much accuracy at all. Um, the most cited estimate is by Gary Kleck of around 2.5 million per year. Um, and, you know, the average estimate is somewhere around 3 million or something. The high estimates of defensive gun ownership, of defensive gun uses per year, imply that they're uh, significantly more common than actual gun crimes. Right, so it's quite possible that private gun ownership prevents more crime than it causes. Well, Professor, that's very interesting data on uh, uh, guns that protect people versus guns that uh, may be killing people in the act of a crime. Um, well, let's turn to another issue that's typically brought up with gun control, and that is concealed weapons. I know that can be very confusing to many people and varies by state, but tell us your thoughts about uh, concealed weapons. Uh, another thing that people commonly talk about is concealed weapons. So uh, there are studies of this, the effect of allowing people to carry concealed weapons. Uh, there was a famous study by John Lott, um, which suggested that um, having more permissive laws for carrying concealed weapons reduced crime. Now, that was subsequently disputed by a bunch of people, so uh, it's under debate whether it actually reduces crime. It might have no effect. It depends upon sort of assumptions that you make. Um, there is a review of the evidence by the National Research Council, uh, part of the National Academy of Sciences in 2005, which is, and basically says, well, the results are kind of sensitive to what assumptions you make, and there's no clear consensus on the effect of these laws, right? That basically, you can have more and less restrictive laws for whether you're allowed to carry concealed weapons or what you have to do to be allowed. Well, Professor, my understanding of the history of the concealed weapon laws was that many years ago, um, the public, the elected officials, the bureaucrats, whatever, wanted the guns uh, to be out in the open. They didn't want them concealed because they didn't know who had a gun then. So in order to be sort of transparent, you were supposed to wear your gun on the outside, and I guess that may goes goes all the way back to the uh, you know the cowboy days, if you will. But then people got skittish about guns, and they said, "No, I don't want to see them out there. It looks like they're too dangerous. It looks like you're about to use them." And so states passed laws that said, "No, you need to uh, conceal those weapons so that it's not um, openly available or publicly viewed." So we now go back and forth. Many states are actually passing laws that allow for open carry uh, of guns. So as we move into this crazy mix here, what's your, what's your ultimate conclusion as far as the value or the purpose of restricting guns for the so-called benefit of the much broader masses? Does it make any sense from a philosophical standpoint and your analysis of the data? Um, okay, so uh, the conclusion is, well, it's not exactly known, right? Uh, there is evidence on both sides um, for both of these kinds of laws. Uh, that means that it really does not satisfy the requirement of 
preventing much greater harm than it causes, right? Uh, it's quite possible that gun laws cause greater harm than they prevent. Okay, Professor, you've given our audience a very good philosophical view as to why gun laws don't make any sense, why restricting one person's rights um, in order to preserve somehow a better good just doesn't match up with uh, uh, gun laws. But there was a second area that you mentioned, and that is the compliance issue. Can you talk about the compliance issue and the problem with gun laws relative to the compliance of the population who would or would not be using guns? The second major problem with most gun control laws is the non-compliance problem. Right. So uh, you have to distinguish between debating guns and debating gun laws. The topic for us isn't are guns good or bad. The topic is about gun laws. And you have to separate those two things um, because laws frequently do not have their intended effects, and they also frequently have additional unintended effects, which could be harmful. Uh, having a law that says nobody is allowed to do X doesn't mean that actually nobody does X, right? So, Professor, explain the noncompliance issue relative to gun laws that we need to be aware of that might create adverse effects, the unintended consequences. So, you know, you should ask, well, what about the gun laws in particular? Are there special reasons why there would be a big noncompliance problem? Uh, yes, there are. So one is that in the United States, there's a very large gun culture, which if you're not part of it, you probably don't quite appreciate. But there's a very large number of Americans who have guns, a large number who love them and have no intention of ever giving them up, right? Um, and you know, a large number of people for whom this is a major part of their lifestyle is like going out shooting or hunting or whatever. Uh, there are somewhere around 300 million guns in the United States, which is approaching to be approaching the number of actual people in the United States and is larger than the number of adults. Uh, guns are very durable objects which means that even if production completely stopped right now, 50 years from now, there would still be 300 million guns in the United States, right? Um, so all of this makes it, like, really problematic to try to get rid of them if you wanted to. Well, Professor, I find your arguments from the philosophical standpoint very unique, uh, very logical, and gets away from this, well, I'm, I'm an NRA member or I'm a politician who just doesn't want to uh, have anybody with guns. I'm on the far left, and I think their guns are evil and guns kill people. And you get all that sort of political um, arguing that goes on, and we don't wind up with any kind of, of uh, resolution or real solution because we wind up talking about the guns, for example, in the recent school shooting instead of the morality uh, problem of not having the kind of conscience we used to talk about as youth that guides us or having a belief in a higher being that uh, we're responsible to. There doesn't seem to be any real moral um, uh, basis uh, for the lives of many of these people. They are from dysfunctional families. They are from from background or a, a culture that... Uh, uh, encourages violence, that these people live in violence in many cases, they are part of a gang, uh, all these sort of dysfunctional parts of society uh, that we could better address 
with social problems or with counseling or with other approaches than gun reform never seem to get done because we're so focused on gun reforms. So let's take a quick break. Uh, Let's listen to some more commercials. And let's come back uh, and talk a little bit more about this compliance issue, because I know there's a couple other aspects that you want to share with our audience. So we'll be right back after this commercial break. It's a museum. It's a showroom. It's an experience. The Classic Auto Mall in Morgantown, Pennsylvania, is 336,000 square feet of rare, custom, and specialty automobiles on display and on consignment. From the earliest production cars to modern exotics, Classic Auto Mall is a feast for the eyes and the memories. Stroll through time in any season in this climate-controlled facility that you simply have to see to believe. Admission is free. Just remember to bring comfortable shoes. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. Welcome back, listeners, to America's Web Radio. Today we want to continue with our discussion on gun control, gun laws, and what's happening uh, with uh, legislation around the country. And we're speaking with a professor of philosophy, uh, Professor Michael uh, Hemer who has a particularly interesting approach. If you've been following us so far in this hour, uh, he's not looking at it as just a, a pro-gun advocate or anti-gun um, uh, individual. He's looking at it as, the, does this really make any sense? And uh, it's fascinating to think about it from a philosophical way. So let's go back to the professor and have him talk about the problems with compliance. We've already heard a little bit about compliance issues, but he's got more interesting thoughts on why it makes little sense to have gun laws when you have such little compliance and why there is such little compliance. So, Dr. Um, and Professor, uh, give us a little bit more of this background on compliance. The final problem is gun laws are specifically aimed at criminals. This is not true of most laws. As most laws prohibit something that is intrinsically bad, the gun laws are aimed specifically at restricting the behavior of people who would already independently be criminals. That is, you want to, you want to take the guns away from criminals. You don't want to take them away from just ordinary people. Uh, roughly speaking, there are two kinds of reasons that you might want a gun. There are criminal reasons and non-criminal reasons. The criminal reasons are you want a gun so you can go and kill somebody or rob somebody or whatever. You want it so that you can commit some other crime, not a gun crime, right? Something that's already illegal, even if you didn't have a gun. Uh, And then there are non-criminal reasons, like you want to defend yourself or you want to go out shooting on the weekends or you're a hunter or whatever, or you just think they're cool, right? Okay, which are basically innocent reasons. And the purpose of having the gun laws is specifically to get guns away from the criminals, um, in order to make it harder for them to commit other crimes. And you don't want to take them away from the ordinary law-abiding citizens, right? Uh, the problem, though, is it's really hard to, um, it's hard to get criminals to follow laws. <laughs> so, Professor, a lot of people talk about putting in various restrictions on the purchase of gun, 
the ability to even um, own a gun. Um, tell us a little bit about what you see in terms of the laws that might be passed to restrict uh, gun ownership, as we've seen proposed or suggested, at least, in the United States Congress and has happened in many cities around the country. <laughs> so and the thing is, like, most of the gun restrictions that people talk about, um, if enacted, they would be misdemeanors, Right. So, like, buying a kind of gun that you're not allowed to buy, or if you're a person who's not allowed to buy the gun, right, it would be a misdemeanor. And the crimes that we're trying to stop the people from committing would be felonies. Uh, People who are likely to commit a felony, to begin with, are also not likely to be, um, they're not likely to stop at committing a misdemeanor gun law violation, right? So, like, if I was going to go commit a murder, I'm probably not going to think, oh, no, wait, but then I would be violating a gun law. So, right. Um, now, you might think, oh, yeah, well, but it will slightly increase the punishment, right? Because, you know, you'll get a couple more years because you committed the crime with a gun. Yeah, but if that was your point, just increase the punishment for the original crime, right? Okay, Professor, you make a pretty good, simple argument about that uh, criminals are not going to pay attention to laws that um, are just misdemeanors when what they may be doing with the gun is a felony. Um, but Talk to us a little bit about the, um, the non-criminal, the normal person, and uh, their level of compliance or non-compliance and what they're thinking might be. What's the philosophy around uh, the individual who is just wanting to own guns? Uh, give us a little bit of that perspective, if you would, please. The laws are likely to affect the behavior of ordinary non-criminal citizens. Right, so if you want the gun for a non-criminal purpose, it's likely that you will obey gun restriction laws. If you want a gun for a criminal purpose, it's most likely that you will not obey them, which means that the actual effect of the gun laws is likely to be the opposite of the intended effect. What you want is for the criminals to not have guns, but everybody else should be allowed to have them. But what will actually happen is the reverse. The criminals will continue to have guns, or you know, the kind of gun that they're not supposed to have, and then ordinary citizens will give them up. Right. Okay. Uh, that was the main non-compliance problem. Well, Professor Hamer, um, your presentation and your train of thought to me is absolutely fascinating to look at it from the angle that you look at it as a philosopher. I hope our audience has really enjoyed this. Would you sort of give a summary as to the way you like to think and the way you like to look at uh, um controversial topics like this and we'll wrap up this session with those comments and then I've got another guest as far as our audience is concerned stay with us because I've got another guest I want to talk about uh, this uh, same issue of gun control but Professor Hamer if you would uh, sort of wrap up your thoughts for our audience I would appreciate it Um, and I want to say sort of like generally um, if you form an opinion on a controversial issue you really do kind of have to read from both sides. You need to listen to both sides, and you need to listen to not, like, I don't mean popular sources. I don't mean blog posts or, like, um, op-eds in newspapers or whatever. Usually the best things are sort of academic, uh, which means also that they're less entertaining. Okay. Again, I want to thank you, Professor Michael Hemer. And for our audience, I want to turn to maybe a little bit more traditional approach looking at gun um, laws and and restrictions and looking at the Second Amendment itself. In fact, what I want to bring in is one of the national experts. 
a guy named um, Clark uh, Neely. And Clark is a, um, a senior fellow uh, at the uh, vice president at the Cato Institute. And Clark, what I would like for you to do for this audience is go through the actual words of the Second Amendment, try to explain a little bit of maybe the context, because most people who are against uh, gun laws, against the Second Amendment, say, well, that was just something that the old guys did back in the uh, beginning of our country uh, when we all needed to have guns and uh, we, you know, we helped to defeat the British and all that history that's there. But we really don't need uh, gun laws today, and the Second Amendment is kind of outdated. So would you please give us a little bit of background on the actual Second Amendment and a little bit of context uh, surrounding it so we can all have a better understanding? And I want to start um, by sort of um, trying to uh, frame a context, which is that I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is is to fail to appreciate the words in context. Um, all, uh, you know, meaning to some extent is contextual. Uh, and when we're talking about rights, I think one of the most important contexts to appreciate um, is that the, the the framers of the Constitution and, and many uh, scholars and, and lawyers today, myself included, believe that the Constitution does not create rights, that instead the Constitution acknowledges rights, um, and in some cases it fails to acknowledge rights that nevertheless exist and can be constitutionally protected. Well, Clark, that's a novel concept for some of us who are not lawyers, don't know the full history of Supreme Court cases and that sort of thing. Um, we think the Constitution is you know, almost um, in some cases like the Bible, it says what it says and we need to follow it um, with making some tweaks. But the idea that um, the Constitution doesn't state all of the um, rights that are that are constitutionally protected is a concept that, um, you know, I'm having a little bit difficulty uh, understanding uh, as a layman. Can you give me an example of what you're talking about? I'll give you one example that is um, far from controversial. Um, in the early 1900s, the Supreme Court held in a pair of cases called Pierce and Myers that parents have a right to guide the upbringing of their children. That right is not mentioned anywhere in the text of the Constitution, and yet the Supreme Court held, and I believe uncontroversially, uh, that you do have that right. So that that's the context in which I think about the Second Amendment. Um, and I reject the idea that if the Constitution either fails to mention a particular right or discusses that right in a way uh, that is potentially confusing um, or uh, doesn't resonate, you know, with the modern ear, that therefore the right doesn't exist. Um, and I would include very much in, in that in the uh, uh, list of rights that are not expressly mentioned in the Constitution, but nevertheless exist and are enforceable, a basic right to defend yourself. Um, not necessarily with a gun, that's something we'll get into in a moment, uh, but the idea uh, that each and every one of us uh, has a natural right to defend themselves against sudden violence or even, you know, an attack by a wild animal, which is a thing that still happens sometimes, um, I think is, um, again, largely uncontroversial, uh, but not spelled out in the text of the Constitution. I think that matters. Okay, Clark. Now, let me have you put your, your real legal hat on. I know that you were very involved with the uh, most important um, Second Amendment case, the Heller case, but without confusing our audience or getting too far into the weeds about a specific Supreme Court case. Uh, you are very steeped in all this, so 
Let me ask you to spell out the Second Amendment and try to go through uh, the parts of it and explain what it says and maybe what it doesn't say, but may still be uh, constitutional. So now we're talking about the Second Amendment specifically, and the language of the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, And as I'm sure most of you know, this has given rise to essentially two schools of thought. Uh, One school puts a tremendous amount of emphasis on the what we call the prefatory clause of the Second Amendment uh, and essentially says, look, um, this speaks to being armed only in the context of some kind of militia service. And it's really not um, an individual right, or at least not an individual right that you can enforce outside the context of some kind of uh, militia service. The second camp, which is the one that ultimately prevailed uh, in the Heller case from 2008, is one that says um, the operative clause, the second clause of the Second Amendment is where most of the action is, um, and the one that really uh, speaks to the substance of the right at issue. Um, and just as it says, the right of the people to keep and bear arms cannot be infringed and therefore, or shall not be infringed. Um, and what this entails is that uh, individuals have a right to uh, uh, both keep and uh, carry uh, firearms. So, Clark, um, for those people who are diehard, you know, NRA people want to keep the guns, don't want anybody to do anything, they, they look at that word shall not infringe upon Does that mean there is no ability for any regulations or any kind of restrictions, any kind of logical compromise, if you will, on the use of guns or weapons or other things that might be included in the definitions of the Second Amendment? I understand that, you know, there's the the two parts. There's the preparatory um, uh, part to the Second Amendment, and it's now the Supreme Court has really ruled on the second part, said you are allowed to have guns at your home. And there's a new case that has been developed lately that says, no, you can actually carry guns outside your home for protection as well. But in this whole idea of uh, in no infringement, are there restrictions or are there limitations that can be put on the Second Amendment, in your opinion? Um, now, like all constitutional rights, it is, of course, limited. Even the rights in the First Amendment that we many people consider to be sacrosanct, like freedom of expression or freedom of religion, even those rights uh, are subject uh, to limitations. Uh, the, the ability to speak even is not unfettered. Uh, there are some things that you, the government can prevent you from doing. Uh, and the same is true with the Second Amendment. Whichever interpretation of the Second Amendment you happen to embrace, um, it will come with significant uh, limits, and those have yet to really be spelled out by the Supreme Court. But where things stand right now is that the Supreme Court has held five to four in the Heller case that uh, individuals do have a right to keep a gun at home for self-defense. So let me just jump in and stop you there because we've reached the time limit on this segment. Let's take a quick commercial break and I want to come back and we want to talk to Clark Neely from the Cato Institute who's giving us a real legal uh, perspective on the Second Amendment and gun laws. We'll be right back. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at 
Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio in the final segment of this week's program. We're talking about the Second Amendment uh, Bill of of Rights and the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms and uh, and gun laws and all the controversy that's going on after the shooting in in Texas. So what we're doing now is we're talking more from a legalese standpoint with a a Mr. Um, uh, Clark Neely, who actually was one of the lawyers on the uh, Heller case, which established the constitutional right or the Supreme Court's recognition of the constitutional right uh, for people to bear arms to protect their own home. And so now we're going a little bit further and we're trying to talk about the history. Why in the language of the Second Amendment did they talk about the militia? And since the Constitution was actually, I guess, ratified in 1788, it was 1791 before the Bill of Rights was added, why were the people back then, why were our founding fathers so worried about uh, the ability to um, uh, be able to carry arms that they put in the Second Amendment the way they do. So I think a little bit of the history and background will help all of us understand some of the current day interpretations of what is there and even what is not there that is still constitutional. So, uh, Mr. Neely, uh, if you would, give us a little bit more of that historical background. The They were in a bit of a bind uh, because... They had just spent about eight years um, in combat with uh, the most powerful nation on Earth, uh, Great Britain, uh, here on on uh, the North American continent. And um, they were very leery uh, of the idea of, of, you know, a big national government because they had just gotten finished fighting one off and, and being tyrannized by one. And so what we had for a period of time was the Articles of Confederation, where essentially uh, you had a bunch of individual uh, uh, former colonies, now states, um, that were essentially trying to uh, coexist and, uh, you know, uh, uh, work together. Um, and um, it really wasn't working. There were a lot of problems uh, with, you know, essentially, um, are we a country or not a country? We're just a collection of states. 
Um, and so the, uh, there was this impetus to come together and, and, and essentially come up with a better plan. And, um, the real, uh, you know, sort of innovation that emerged, um, from the, um, uh, the constitutional convention was the idea of creating this new government, a national government, um, and a new country. Uh, but this made a lot of people very nervous because some of the people said, you know, this looks a lot like this country we just got finished fighting with because they were tyrannizing us. What guarantee do we have that this new uh, national government that we create won't just turn around um, and boss us around and uh, oppress us in, in, in the same way that Great Britain did? And that was really where most of the action was. Um, and uh, so there was two, uh, you know, sort of factions that emerged, the Federalists who, who supported the Constitution and the creation of a of a new national government, the United States of America, and the anti-federalists who essentially felt, nope, the risk is too great. Uh, We are not reassured about our safety. uh, And we're afraid that essentially we're creating a kind of a Frankenstein's monster that is just going to, you know, be too strong for us to control and will will quickly become uh, oppressive. So that's helpful background to understand sort of the mentality or at least the environment within which there was struggling about various issues, including the right to bear arms. What about at the time um, whether or not the country would have a standing army? Because for the most part, uh, the army that was put together was not really a standing army that defeated uh, Great Britain. So what about the issue of the standing army? And then we can maybe talk about militia versus an army and, and what the real difference might be and what they were thinking about at the time that they wrote the uh, Second Amendment. And one of the things that was very much uh, on people's minds um, was whether uh, this new national government, this new United States of America, uh, would uh, be able to have a standing army, standing navy, and you know uh, this this uh, uh, this army that uh, that it can use to go out uh, potentially and, and oppress us the same way we were oppressed by the you know the the, the British redcoats. And um, one of the things that the uh, Federalists pointed out. Um, the supporters of the Constitution pointed out is that even though the Constitution, which had not yet ratified at the time, uh, does empower the federal government uh, to create a standing army, which um, you know is a, a very scary thing for for many people back then, that it would be uh, difficult and perhaps impossible for uh, this this notional government, the United States, to oppress the people. Why? Uh, because the people would be able to come together and fight off uh, the federal government if if push came to shove, and the reason they would be able to do that. Um, is that the uh, the Constitution does not empower the government to disarm the citizens. And most people back then had guns. That's something everybody should understand. Um, most people uh, were farmers back then. Most people lived in relatively rural areas. And I would say that uh, firearms uh, during the founding era were roughly the equivalent. It was, it, was, it was to them what our smartphones are to us. If you're going more than about 50 or 100 feet from your home, you bring a gun. And that's just how it was back then. So um, the idea was essentially that... Uh, the um, it's not that dangerous to to create the United States. It's not that dangerous to empower it to create a standing army because uh, uh, we have a tradition of individual arms ownership in this country. And just as we rose up as a as a kind of a single unified people against Great Britain to throw off the uh, you know the yoke of tyranny, we could do the same thing if necessary against uh, the U.S. government. So the original thought is that the people would be empowered with with arms that could fight off, they could get together, and who are they going to be fighting? They'd be fighting themselves, the people who would be in any army of the federal government would be citizens, and we would be able to, um, you know, coerce one side or the other, so we really wouldn't have a, a war between citizens and the government, but just the threat of that uh, would satisfy a number of people that we could minimize the power 
of the federal government over individual citizens by having the Second Amendment. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, the thought at the time of what a militia was and how that might really be different than a standing army. And the, the sort of the fighting unit uh, that ordinary citizens will form when they come together with their private arms to resist tyranny would be a militia. And a militia was a much different thing back in the founding era than it is today. Most people think of the militia now as, oh, that, that's kind of like the National Guard. Um, no, during the founding era, they would have considered the National Guard, which is under the complete control of the federal government, they would have considered that to be a standing army. A militia is a much more locally organized um, and and directed uh, kind of fighting force that uh, not only can but does uh, uh, you know counterbalance the military force of an official federal standing army. So um, that's really the significance of the word militia in the Second Amendment. It is not a national guard. It is not the kind of fighting force that's under the control of a federal government. On the contrary, it's the kind of fighting force that is organic and 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 local uh, that can pull together when necessary to 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 resist tyranny. Mr. Neely, I also understand that you've made a really good argument in the past about how an amendment was the First Amendment, Second Amendment, whatever. It doesn't necessarily have one particular reason for it existing. Um, so it's not that we can't, you know, we can't use uh, cannons and we certainly can't compete with the federal government with the military might that they have today. But that doesn't mean that the uh, value of the Second Amendment is diminished because that was sort of the thinking of our founding fathers, that they also had other reasons and there's other perspectives uh, to accept the Second Amendment as it stands. Can you give a little background on that? Question. I think there are two points to make. One is uh, to touch on what I think is another uh, kind of fallacy, and that's the idea that um, constitutional rights have very particular ends. There's like one reason for having it. You have a right of free expression because the government has no business outside of a very small number of areas um, silencing you. So we don't protect the right of freedom of expression because, you know, we sort of look at our constitutions. Oh, yeah, they put it in there so that people could do politics. No, no. That is a position that has been advanced, and, and but not persuasively. And I would say the same thing about the right to own uh, weapons. It's not in there for one. It's like they may have a, there was a particular thing that may have prompted them to put the Second Amendment in the Constitution. But it's not as if, oh, you're only the only reason why we protect the right to own guns is so that you can resist government tyranny. No, that's just one of many reasons that that people, um, uh, you know, may wish to own guns. But the right to own weapons um, is not categorically distinct than uh, from the right of free expression. You don't have to convince somebody that what you plan to say somehow promotes civic order or, you know, the good of the country in order for you to have a right to say it. You have a right to say it because the government has no business telling you otherwise. That's my view of the, of the, of the Second Amendment and arms ownership. You don't have to justify. You don't have to say, well, I need a gun so if in case the government gets tyrannical, I can help resist it. No, you have a right to own a gun because that's a natural right and, uh, and it, it helps facilitate your natural right of self-defense, and you don't have to justify it to anybody any more than you have to justify your right to, to speak. Hi, Mr. Neely. Let me jump in here again. Uh, would you define or help us define uh, in the Second Amendment, it says the uh, shall, uh, you know, not infringe on the right to bear arms. Um, what is arms uh, in today's world? Because we hear many trying to get rid of the Second Amendment or to limit uh, uh, the number of guns in this country put in gun controls. Uh, they used to talk about uh, they want to get rid of the weapons of mass destruction. Then they want to get rid of um, w w weapons of war. Uh, they've described it in various ways, assault weapons. 
so what is the definition, if you will, of arms that makes the most sense under a, in a constitutional uh, perspective? Yeah. Okay. So this is another question that's uh, that's challenging, but not categorically distinct from the other kinds of questions we have to answer when we do constitutional law. You know, the the First Amendment. Uh, prevents the government from infringing your freedom of speech. Well, what does speech mean exactly? Here's a question from, I think, uh, 1989, or at least in the 1980s. Um, if you're bar- burning an American flag, are you engaged in speech or is that an act? Uh, and that divided the court five to four in a case called Texas v. Johnson. Five justices correctly, in my view, held that burning a flag is an act of constitutionally protected expression, even though it's not literally speech. Um, so, what do arms mean? Well, arms mean weapons. Arms mean essentially anything um, that you might pick up to make yourself uh, more effective um, at fighting or defending yourself. So, um, getting back to the specific question of what are arms, um, again, there it's it's a it's not a difficult concept. Um, it's effect- effectively you know any weapon that 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 could make you more effective um, at defending yourself or uh, defeating uh, another person or or animal in combat. And it could and 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 these cases have arisen. They're very fascinating cases. Um, are, are knives covered by the Second Amendment? I was talking to a lawyer up in Long Island last night. I had an event. He was on the um, the government side of a case where a man was brought a, a Second Amendment uh, challenge to a law that a New York law that prohibits people from owning nunchucks. I don't know if anybody's ever seen any Bruce Lee movies, but the nunchucks are the things you're spinning around like this. And uh, um, and uh, there was a case out of Massachusetts where Massachusetts uh, prohibited people from carrying pepper spray. Um, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, no, pepper spray is definitely included within the ambit of the Second Amendment. Of course, where it gets challenging is when we talk about, you know, like weapons of mass destruction um, and, and weapons that the Supreme Court described in Heller as unusually uh, dangerous um, or uh, uh, unusual weapons. Um, and there's going to be line drawing there, just like there's line drawing with every single other part of the Constitution. So the definition of arms is sort of up near where that line is drawn. And there could be some cases, I guess, taking the Supreme Court to sort of clarify that because, uh, you know, I think if you said the, um, you know, you can't have a nuclear weapon, you can't have weapons of mass destruction. What are some of the other issues that you think maybe have not been resolved that the Supreme Court would be unlikely uh, to approve under the Second Amendment? What kind of weapons what might we be talking about there? What kind of arms would not be included as part of the Second Amendment in today's world? Um, doctrine changes over time. Um, I'm pretty sure that the Supreme Court will also not protect if anybody ever tries to take a case to the Supreme Court under the Second Amendment involving fully automatic weapons, which are commonly called machine guns. I don't think there's any possibility the Supreme Court would find those to be within the ambit of the Second Amendment um, definition of arms, even though I think you could make a pretty strong uh, originalist case uh, that they should be, um, particularly because, as we talked about before, part of the reason for for acknowledging the right to keep and bear arms is to make people more effective in their ability to resist a tyrannical government. A fully automatic weapon would be helpful in that regard. But Supreme Court tends to be pretty pragmatic. We do things, uh, there's always, almost always balancing going on, even when they deny that it is. And uh, I'm quite confident that the Supreme Court will never uh, uh, hold that uh, fully automatic machine guns are protected under the Second Amendment. Thank you, Mr. Neely, for an excellent presentation on the Um, legal constitutional interpretation and history of the Second Amendment. It really works well for everybody to understand. I hope our audience learned a lot today. Uh, Your perspective following the philosophical perspective we gave earlier really creates a nice package of a clear, logical, 
unemotional presentation and understanding of the Second Amendment. I think many in our audience are very much supportive of the Second Amendment, and I hope now they can take some tools and resources to uh, support their argument if they get into a debate with somebody who is against that. So we'll see you all next week. I hope you'll join us again on America's Web Radio and listen to Healthcare Insight. Thank you all for being here. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.